1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Elisa Eastwood Pulido, author of The Spiritual Evolution of Margarito Bautista, a Mexican Mormon Evangelizer, Polygamist, Dissident, and Utopian Founder, from 1868 to 1961, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Uh, Elisa Eastwood-Polido holds a PhD in Religious Studies from Claremont Graduate University. Last year, she returned to uh, CGU's Department of Religion as a visiting scholar. Her areas of research include the Mormonism in Mexico, race and religion, and religion in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Her recent book, which we're talking about today, The Spiritual Evolution of Margarito Bautista. Uh, again, was released by Oxford University Press in 2020, and she currently lives in Huntington Beach, California, with her daughter. Hello, Elisa, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
2: Oh, Thank you so much, DJ. I'm really pleased and happy that you invited me to come today. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, thank you for accepting the invitation. And uh, to get us started today, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your your background?
2: Okay, I have come to Religious Studies sort of later on in life. I got my PhD in 2015 in Religious Studies, Um, but before that, I had an MFA in writing from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and I had a bachelor's degree in German, so I took this very circuitous route. Um, I'll have to say, so I've published a lot of poetry, but I will have to say that um, my creative writing has helped my academic writing as well. I used to write research poems. Now I'm researching religion, um, but I'm still concerned with um, the sound of language, and I try to be really conscious in. Generous of my readers as I'm writing, so that's where I am today: reading and writing, and mostly a, a lot on race and religion lately, especially in terms of um, Mormonism in in Mexico.
1: Yeah, that makes me curious. I mean, that's that is quite the, uh, as you mentioned, circuitous route, which uh, you know, and it's not abnormal. I mean, a lot of academics have a have a you know less than I'd say traditional or standard uh, kind of path into um, what they do. But I was just wondering, so what was it that that caused you to make that switch uh, from from being a writer, you know, a poet, and then saying, hey, this religion and race sound pretty interesting.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, what I first said to myself was, wow, I think I'd like to go get a PhD in mythology because that would really fuel my writing, right? all those wonderful um, legends, etc. But what happened is, was that I found, I was living in San Juan Capistrano at the time, um, and I saw that there was a brand new degree, well, a program in, um, well, it was a chair. Richard Bushman was coming from Columbia University to Claremont Graduate University, Uh, for a new program in Mormon Studies. So I thought, wow, I'd like to take some classes from him and who has better founding narratives and stories than religion? That's gotta fuel some writing and I will have to say it definitely has. Um, I'm probably about four projects out right now. So um, yeah, it has fueled my writing for sure. And not only that expanded my view on human experience on the world. Um, I, I really, it, it's been sort of this massive, massive awakening for
1: me. I love that. I love hearing right how people, uh, how, how we get into what we're really interested about. It, it re- always reminds me, and I make the analogy, uh, and this is going to date me somewhat, of this old PC game called um, Minesweeper. I'm not sure if you remember that. It's basically looked like, A puzzle box right and you would click on these boxes to try to detect where the mine is and you would like click on this one box and then a whole mass like vast area would open up right so like the interest like yeah you know getting a phd sounds like an you know fun right an interesting project let's go do that right and then you just open you're you're exposed to this vast world right of all these different pathways and things you could study and examine and, and, and learn about. So well, um, I love that.
2: I come also from this family of um, five girls and a boy. there were in my family and I was experiencing a personal crisis at the time. And um, what in our, my family, it's like, my parents are both teachers. So you have a problem, go back to school, get another <laughs> degree. <laughs> <laughs> Answer to all life's problems. Right. I yeah. have to say it hasn't earned me any money, but it sure kept my mind occupied.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're gonna have to talk a lot more after this because there's so, there's a lot of similarities between us. Um I also come from a family of uh it's what's four girls and one boy. I'm the only boy among my siblings. Um and both my parents were educators also. They're both uh, K through uh mostly primary education. My dad was eventually a a elementary school uh, principal, but, but yeah, I I credit that for instilling this kind of mindset in myself, like the moments when I've been lost in my life or, Oh my gosh, uh, this career failed me. What am I going to do now? Well, go back to school, you know, (laughs) (laughs) learn some more, try again. Right. Great. Great. Well, uh, let's talk about the book. Uh, And, you know, this is obviously, I mean, a figure, even for uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, uh, you know, people known as Mormons, referred to as Mormons or, or Latter Day Saints (LDS) people, uh, I mean, this is a figure that that very few know about. Um, you know, I mean, I, uh, uh, I I'm not a religious historian. Um, I don't talk a lot about it on on my channel usually because it's just not, it's so far from my field. But uh, I, I'm really intrigued by it, and as someone that uh, himself, you know, my parents, they converted to the, the church. They joined this church, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when I was a, a, a baby. Um, and so I was eventually raised in it. I mean, this is a person we never heard about, right? There's, there's, if you're Mexican or Mexican-American and you grew up in the Mormon church in the United States, um, a, a Mexican or even a Latin American, I, I'm going to venture to say, is really a leader in the church. is something you never hear about, right? So... Um yeah, just tell us, how did you find out? How did you discover um, Margarito and and eventually decide this guy needs a biography and I'm going to do it?
2: Uh, well, yeah, he's a, kind of been thought of as a pariah within uh, Mormon history for a long time. Um, I wrote a paper on the third convention for a class um, on, um, Well, the section was on religion in the borderlands, but um, the teacher was Gaston Espinosa, and he's written a lot about Latino, um, Latinx spirituality and religiosity. He was fascinated. Uh, The third convention was a schismatic movement where a third of the members of the church in Mexico left the church in 1936. They had petitioned the mainstream church in Salt Lake City for a, a, a Mexican president of the Mexican mission. They wanted a native president of the mission. And the answer was no. And eventually, the, the, this group left the church and the leaders were excommunicated. Among the leaders of this group, uh, the, one of the main figures was Margarita Bautista. Um. Gusto Nespinoza was so animated by my paper. He had done a paper on a Pentecostal evangelizer by the name of Francisco Olasabel, who really built a lot of congregations for the Assemblies of God and Borderlands. But eventually what happened is there, were ten- there was tension between the leadership of the Assemblies of God and and Francisco Olazabal because it was over leadership, over leadership. Um, the Latino assemblies of God wanted to lead themselves. Eventually, what happened was Olazabal ended up splitting off and forming the Latin American Councils of Council of Churches in 1923. Um, Professor Espinosa saw suddenly clearly still. So many parallels between Bautista and Olazaba. He uh, recommended, I read Rudy Busto's um, book, I don't know if you've read it, King, um, The Religious Vision of Reyes Lopez Tijerina, King Tiger. An amazing book. He mm-hmm. also um, talks about problems with the Methodists in Texas, because they felt the dingoes were in control. Uh, if you just start looking through the entire religious history of Mexico and in the borderlands, and even when Protestant missionaries first came to Mexico, um, after a while, the the Mexican ministers they're ordaining want to have some leadership in the mission. So, I he realized he he understood prior to that he understood that. Um, this is a ubiquitous problem. It's not a Mormon problem. It's not a Pentecostal problem. This is a problem of, um, between ethnicities, right? It's a racial problem within, in, um, between the um, Latino members or co- previously colonized members of the church, of a, any church, and then the people who convert them. They're originally very excited to join uh, and for the new things that they are learning, but then there comes a point where they feel like they've mastered the material and want to, uh, want to be empowered to lead themselves. Um, and this is a point that a lot of Euro-American missionary movements have missed when they have moved into the borderlands and tried to um, proselytize. Mexican and Mexican-Americans, this whole history of spiritual colonization rears up in everyone's face. Well, you're excited to learn new things, but of course, they weren't hoping for new overlords. So um, that that is kind of the tension right there. So um, my parents were actually missionaries in Mexico in 1946 at the reunification of the convention.
1: Wow, no way. Yeah,
2: and that's where they met. That's why my name is Elisa. (laughs) 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 They became became Spanish teachers when they came home. Uh, Pulido is a name that I share with my three fabulous children. So um, at any rate, what Gaston told me, he said, look, you are in a position where you have your parents to interview. They know other missionaries who who um, were familiar with the convention, who perhaps met Margarito. And so it is, you are in a unique position because these people are passing away. History doesn't wait for you. You have to do it when you can. And um, so I decided that he was right. And if he was this excited, a man who is not a Mormon, (laughs) was this excited about Margarito, who had left, Thousands of pages of writing. And I have to understand this almost never happens. I've been to AAR conventions where the way they recover um, native voices, native convert voices is through missionary records. This didn't have to happen with Margarita because he had 25 years of diaries and a 564 page book and scores of pamphlets and letters and articles. Um, I, I could go straight to him and hear what he had to say about it. But um, I found that um, Professor Espinosa's advice was perfectly right. I interviewed the people I put in the process of writing my book. They have all since passed, including my own father and mother. So that most of them were in their late 80s or 90s when I began. So, um, yeah, it was an opportunity that wasn't coming back. And that's, that's what got me started. I started going up to Utah then and... I started doing research at the Mexican Mormon History Museum, and BYU, and the LDS Church History Archives, University of Utah. Um, I just, I just did a lot of research up there. Then I wrote my dissertation, and my dissertation committee just asked me, "Then when is your book coming out?" So <laughs> I had to, um, I had to begin writing all over again. And, um, you know, he's a complex figure. I, I kind of waited a while to do it again because he's transnational, bilingual, religiously diverse, etc. So while it is and still, you know, while it was and still is important to look at the details of his life, the few years that it took me to write the book after I graduated gave me um, the benefit of a greater perspective just to stand back a little further take all the details and i think that that was very important and helpful uh, to
1: me. definitely i i agree there and i i mean i'm currently in a a similar position with with my first book and i can attest to how much it it does help um you know to, to put a little distance um between you know, investing all that time and effort in research and writing a dissertation and then making the transition, right, into actually writing a book, a very different thing. Um, the, for me, my students do provide a ton of help in that. But um, I also just want to mention what, uh, I mean, appreciate so many of the things that you you brought up in describing, you know, the pathway into writing this book. It, it actually made me think of a, a saying um, that uh, Juan Gomez Quiñones, who is one of the you know, the founding fathers, if you will, of uh, Chicano history, and Chicano studies, um, you know, professor at UCLA. Uh, he was known for saying, write history that matters. And, uh, you know, the response, you know, to, you know, your paper, right, first, and then the dissertation, right, is it was testament to people saying, you know, you found something. And as you mentioned, this is not just a story that matters for Mormons or Mexican Mormons. The applicability right to that challenge right of you know christian evangelization particularly throughout the global south right um this just has so many parallels right and, and intersections with all of those things and issues oh, and challenges uh,
2: um yeah missionaries tend to go charging in all over the world mm-hmm. without um understanding the history the cultural the political the religious history
1: of where they, where they had shown up. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so the third convention, as you mentioned, which, uh, you know, well, well, your parents met at this reunification, right? So this reunification happens in 1947. The third convention is where, you know, there's a split that happens within... Um, Mexican Mormon, you know, saints. Right. Uh, uh, so that's kind of like the hinge point of, of the book, I think maybe in, in many ways, let's go back a little bit. And can you, can you talk about his spiritual evolution, his, his early pathway, how does he find Mormonism? Right. And, uh, what's his, you know, early impact and in, and in influence on, uh, the Mormon church in Mexico and in eventually in Salt Lake where he moves.
2: Well, he was investigating Methodism at the time. He was really studying Methodism and thinking that he might become a Methodist. He lived um, on the slopes of the uh, of the volcano Popo Capital in Atlautla. And in this area, you know, you have this kind of passage that runs up between the mountains from Mexico City was a way for many marketplaces and trading of goods, but also religious movements passed along here. So when the Mormon missionaries came to the area, they're also following these trade routes and and the markets, and it was interesting because I I found this very fascinating. The Mormon church was, um, or missionaries, were holding meetings. They didn't have a church building in the same home that the Methodists were holding them in. <laughs> I guess the Methodists would meet, then the Mormons would meet. So um, yeah, he found out about it when they came to his area or actually one came in, it was Ammon Tenney, who probably spent 25 years of his life proselytizing um, Native Americans uh, and also Mexicans. Spent a lot of years in the saddle actually. <laughs> By the time, uh, you know, uh, yeah, so he came to teach Bautista. Um, Bautista had a faith healing by Aminteni. Um He had a terrible case of food poisoning that left him extremely ill for a long time. And finally, um, he had a faith healing. I've heard a couple of versions of this story, but the way his sister Juana tells it is that that um. Her father had thrown Bautista Margarito out of the house for investigating Mormonism. And he was living with a group of young men and, and he ate some bad eggs they found somewhere. And this is what made him ill. She says she begged her father to um, let Margarito have this faith in He did have it and he was healed. Um, I don't know. I don't think he joined the church immediately thereafter, but he really wanted to attend a conference. Um, and his father in Cuernavaca, his father didn't want him to go. And the reason his father was pretty set against him becoming a Latter-day Saint was because he, he was set to become a minister for the Methodists. They that's a salaried position, right? You won't have to worry. Um, the Methodists will help you, and, and instead, he chose this religion where they have a lay ministry, there is no payment. And he actually put so much effort really into his um evangelizing of Mormons throughout the, his life that he he. Um, was actually struggling with poverty most of the time, uh, most of his life, because he didn't have a paid position as a minister. But in addition to the faith healing that he had, he says he was very drawn in his narrative about in the Improvement Era that he wrote of his conversion um, to the narratives of the Book of Mormon, which say that native the native peoples in the americas are descendants of abraham that they're members of, of the house of israel so this gave him this kind of um spiritual identity that he really longed for and it also valorized the mexican past but Mormon did by giving him this history of prophets and conscientious objectors and and warriors and wonderful, wonderful stories, this, this history, he wasn't just the descendant of human sacrificing Aztecs, and he 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 um, was he was the descendant of a great spiritual figure. So this was very compelling to him. It's very compelling to him that the chosen people in the Americas, the seed of Abraham were the indigenous, not the Euro-American
1: colonizers
2: and that things had gone top of in the world and were backwards.
1: Right, so those two things, right, the kind of his this faith healing of Swartz that he has, right, but then also the real appeal of um, some of the theology or at least the narratives, it's more the, the narratives within the Book of Mormon, right? Or a record yeah. of kind of early Christians in the Americas that he finds so appealing. Right. right. Wonderful. Yeah. And, and so then he, he joins the church, uh, right? The, the Mormon church in, in Mexico. Uh, and what does he begin doing? I mean, he has this gift for preaching. Um, how does he fit this into a church that has a lay ministry?
2: Well, um, he gets asked immediately, even before he was baptized by Amenteni, to help with proselytizing. You see, Amantani didn't have a missionary companion; he had no one to help him, and he um, in, he just put the native investigators and their um, and newly baptized converts to work. Margarito was called on a, well, he was sent on a few short-term missions thereafter. And so he's just constantly kind of helping the missionaries or preaching the gospel to the Mormon gospel to, to anyone who could find, who will listen to it. He was only, after he was baptized, it took about two years. And he got married. He was in his early 20s. He got married but he decided that he wanted he wasn't going to learn enough about Mormonism in central Mexico. So he was only there two years. And then he went up uh, to the Mormon colonies where he could be near um, the core leadership of the church. The, the Mormon colonies are about a thousand miles north in the Chihuahuan desert up in uh, around, well, one of them, Colonia Du is now the way the Casas Grandes, and then there's um, Colonia Juarez. So, um, and Juarez, I think is what the city's called now. So he went up there to see how Mormonism functioned amongst these, these um, Euro-American colonists that Porfirio Diaz had allowed to establish colonies. And, uh, and he had even told him he would turn his head away from their practice of polygamy. So this is kind of a turning point as well in that life. I'm sorry to jump ahead like that, but he was, he, he was only two years in central Mexico before he had to head north.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS?
1: Right, no, and that's perfect, right? Uh so he, he heads north and you're right, he's in these uh polygamist Mormon colonies. Um for uh, listeners that don't know, right, uh Mormons, uh once the practice of polygamy is essentially um outlawed or they're they're threatened uh itself, the centralized church is threatened if they don't outlaw or change the practice of polygamy, right? Potentially can have drastic repercussions for the church itself, its property, right? With the with the, this is the US government, so this is in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, right? So they they you know, on paper, stop the practice, and then those that continue practicing it kind of flee. One of the places they flee to, uh, ironically, is, is Mexico. This is, for those that know a little bit about Mormon history, they'll realize that Mormons fled to Mexico the first time, right, when they uh, left um, the Midwest uh, as a re- result of religious persecution, and they came to Utah. Uh, so that happens, right, in 1840. 1846, right? 1846, 40, yeah, around 1846. And so here again, they're kind of put in this similar position, right, with their practice of polygamy. And that's how the Mormon colonies in essentially Mexico get started. Uh, so right, I think there's some, I mean, some of these uh, polygamists also went up to Canada. That's not the subject of the book. But anyway, so that's how these these colonies get together, right? And that's how they form. So he spends time there. You mentioned that uh, this is where, you know, he's, I mean, he's essentially converted by, you know, someone that, that lives in these colonies. So I can't remember, It was Teeny himself a polygamist? Did he have multiple wives?
2: Um, yes, he did. But um, when he went down to Mexico, central Mexico, on proselytizing visits, he, he had three wives, but he only brought one of them with him. And um, he brought another one with him once, but didn't let her go to any conferences because he didn't want talk among the members, sort of the agreement. Between Porfirio and Diaz was that they were to practice their polygamy quietly. He let them come. They fled to to Mexico so they wouldn't have to abandon their families, right? Right. right. Um, um, so he he let them practice it quietly, but uh, but he didn't want it spreading among Mexicans. And uh, I think I wrote in my book that the virtue of any class of Mexicans at the time was measured by the virtue of its women, right? Mm-hmm. So they weren't interested in having Mexican women um, become polygamous wives. So, um, yeah, that was the case there. But, yeah, there were several things that happened. So he's, he stays in a polygamous home when he first arrives. He sees polygamy practiced in the community. He's teaching Spanish to the children of, of um, the colonists. And at one point, the head of the church seminary program, that church education system, his name was H. H. Cummings, came down to. Well, he brought, he delivered a message from the president of the church, that they had to write a statement. Even though polygamy had been officially ended by the church, people were still practicing in Mexico. Right. So polygamy, um, the manifesto officially ending polygamy uh, is in 1890. So Margarito Bautista moves there in 1903. But he has to sign a statement that polygamy is a true and eternal principle. Something to that order. and, and Or he will lose his job teaching English. But he also makes all kinds of connections in the Mormon colony. Um, which he, he picks up later, like, um, he becomes, he, he knew Dare LeBaron. Um, he knew Anthony Ivins. He knew a lot of people, but some of these people are, uh, budding fundamentalists. Because even though the church stopped polygamy, there's an argument in Mexico about whether or not it's okay to practice. It was just a problem with the law in the United States. um. And then there are, are questions about whether or not the church should have stopped polygamy. Were they just cowards? They just bowed to the pressure of the US government. And so there is this budding fundamentalist movement that when Bautista, and I don't know if you want me to move to Salt Lake City yet, well, he, he moves first to Arizona, so he becomes friends with Daryl LeBaron. The LeBaron name is probably familiar to a lot of people um, associated with polygamous colonies and and other colonies in northern Mexico. He painted with them and they'd have discussions. But but a lot of these people befriended him, gave him work, cared about him. They were his friends. The issues that Bautista had with polygamy were because he came from Mormon colonies. Those Mexicans who stayed in Central Mexico didn't have the same issues that they had. It was right. it was exposure. <laughs>
1: right. Mm hmm. And so due to these, due to this time, right, in, in the colonies and the connections he develops there, this kind of paves the way for him to be a, a sort of kind of golden boy, right? I mean, the, the, the ideal type of Mexican convert, uh, if you will, and, and this facilitates his move throughout uh, the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, as you mentioned, up into Arizona. Eventually, he and his family go up into Salt Lake. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, you know, his uh, his kind of just this part where he's, um, you know, these connections really facilitate his kind of, I hate to use the word advancement, but he really has, kind of has this exceptional experience for definitely for Mexican migrants, you know, during this period, uh, the, the 1910s, 20s, uh, 30s, et cetera, that are coming from Mexico. Um, he doesn't, you know, really follow that pathway and it's due to these connections, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yes, it is. Have you ever read Jorge Ibra's book, Hispanics and Mormon Zion. He talks about how um, some people he thought um, became Latter Day Saints for the connection. This isn't the case with Bautista. I mean, for him, going to Salt Lake City is like going to Bethlehem and, and seeing the manger or something, right? Um, he's in the crux of of um, the seat of Mormon Mormonism.
1: Yeah. It's like, it's like the Mecca, right?
2: Right. The Mecca. He's, he's, in, you know, next to the temple in Salt Lake city and near the seat of the prophet. Um, he is given a job when he comes. Um, ironically as a gardener, but you know, this is his background. His father was uh, a farmer and uh, on temple square, but, uh, you know, he also has these ecclesiastical opportunities. He um, is initiated into esoteric temple rites, and he becomes a temple worker. A lot of people in Salt Lake, they see a Mexican in the temple. They're stunned. They don't know what to think. Uh, but it means the gospel is growing around the world. You know, it's a glorious sight. And I'm, he becomes this token Mexican, Right. And then um, he gets an opportunity later during the – um, well, to, to go around speaking around Mexico uh, about Mexican politics during the Mexican Revolution. The Mexican Revolution happens while he is um, first in Arizona and then Salt Lake. He, is, he leaves Mexico one month before the revolution breaks out. So, yeah, he was on this little speaker circuit. And then one of the um, friends, the fundamentalist friends that he meets in Salt Lake is Nathaniel Baldwin, who's the inventor of air-compressed radio receivers and has this multi-billion dollar, million dollar company in Mexico. I mean, not Mexico, Salt Lake City, excuse me. And so he offers Bautista a position on his board. And this was a huge boom. Now Nathaniel Baldwin is highly invested in the development of, of what he would call Lamanites, which is what Euro-American Mormons were calling. It's a term from the Book of Mormon that they were calling native uh, the native peoples of the Americas. He's been highly invested in the development of the native peoples of the Americas. He thinks that, um, well, it's something that has gone on in the United States since its inception, where the feeling was they could Christianize, if they Christianized Native Americans and gave them property, then they could be citizens and assimilate into society. So they're talking about, he's thinking about assimilating. And it, it. it, it is oh it's hard for me to talk. About. I'm really sorry, but um, he thinks that if he helps me, ma- um, he helps Bautista and other other native peoples of the Americas. They'll become white, and uh, I'm sure Bautista knows he thinks this because he, he writes about it in his book. But he just he doesn't really care. He's he's really enthralled with the help that he's getting. I think he just kind of feels like um if that's what happens to me it's a necessary evil. <laughs> exactly. right. but, but that is not the focus of his faith. It's not the focus of his religion. it's kind of an idiosyncrasy of some of these early fundamentalists. Who right. are by and large very kind to I mean, when you think about it, um, he came up unemployed. What he'd been painting in Arizona was a gardener, and now he's a member of a company for multi-million million um, on a board of a multi-million dollar company. So this is this meteoric rise through friendship, and then also he's made the first president uh, he helps build a Spanish speaking congregation in Salt Lake City and that is finally officially recognized as a new Church. It's called the Local Mexican Mission he becomes the president of this United people. So he's he's rising in the church, he's rising in a career, he's being recognized as a speaker. He has an article published about his conversion story. Um, these are, these are all steps forward in his life, which eventually, um,
1: come to a crashing halt. Right. Right. Good. And there's, there's a lot more to the story. I appreciate you, uh, you know, doing the best you can there to, to summarize it. It was truly fascinating, all these different experiences he has, these opportunities he get, but, um, and there's a little more, but essentially he's, he reaches kind of the pinnacle, um, Right. I don't know i guess of his membership in the, by the by the mid-1930s uh he goes back to mexico he sent back to mexico on a mission uh right by uh the mormon church particularly yeah, to to there you go so 22 to 24 um and so he he has this position and uh, of prominence essentially right in particularly in his local congregation in in salt lake and he has these connections so this is like his rise and then then what happens right what is it that eventually one of the, the you know the two things that you address in the early part of the book is that you really want to explain um you know, how is it that that this kind of superstar, if you will, or a golden boy, uh, you know, Mexican convert is, uh, you know, driven away from the church or leaves the church. Right. So what's the tension there? And then he becomes this founder of a, you know, separatist, uh, you know, polygamous utopian society. Right. And this is it's quite the turn. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and really, as you mentioned, the, 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 the that convention is the hinge point of all this. Right.
2: Oh, right. So the first thing that happens when he comes back from his mission in 1924 is that um, they have assigned a Spanish convert to be the leader of. They've changed the name now. It's it's the Mexican branch, and and they've assigned this Spaniard to be the leader. This causes some problems in the congregation because this is the Mexican branch, right? Why do we have this? Um, why do we have this? Person of European extraction leading our Mexican branch. A uh, fracas breaks out, and it it um, culminates t- um, in the removal of all Spanish Spanish surname leadership from the branch presidency, uh, or at least as branch president. Forty years in that branch. They wow! Put Euro Americans in there.
1: Yeah, forty years, right? Four zero, right? 40 zero. Oh,
2: my gosh. Yeah. Um, Talk about like a heavy
1: hand. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. So, um, in fact, he disappears from the records of the branch. I, I only know that he was attending a congregation in South Salt Lake City because I saw his name on a piece of letterhead that he wrote a letter to somebody. It was called um, the Wandermere Ward Genealogical Society. And he was the second counselor. That's the only way I know he was there because he just disappears. His kids are still there. His sister's still there. He's no longer there. Um, and I, I uh, he never has a leadership position again in the church, ever. He's never appointed to another leadership position. Um, he writes his book and then he moves to Mexico to get it published. He never comes back. And his family never goes down, so there's this family break there in 1935, um, and it's in 19. The minute he's there, he's so busy. You never saw anybody whirling around so much. Um, as I read as, as you read his diary, he's constantly on the road, talking to people in different congregations, and um, he gets does get his book published, but um, the mission president asks the members not to buy it. Uh, And they've invested in it. He's in really bad financial straits. Um, The third convention comes about, and they petition Salt Lake, and they are told no. Eventually, the third convention splits from the church, and Margarito is, I think I said this earlier, is excommunicated. But before he's excommunicated from the church, he's ousted from the Third Convention because he's decided in Mexico, maybe he's lonely in the absence of his family, but this might be a good time to start building his own polygamous family. And he is surreptitiously viewing the daughters of his friends in the leadership of the Third Convention. So they oust him. It's, this is a really like an apocalyptic year in his life. You know, the failure of his book, his ouster from the Third Convention, his excommunication from the Mormon Church, and so he is um, really at a low spot. He loses most of his family, I mean his friends, his father disowns him. It's really a low spot. When he finally starts his colony and... 1944, or, you know, he, he starts his colony, his sister sells him a piece of land that his father was awarded for service in the Mexican mm-hmm. Revolution. She sells it to him cheaply, and he he has been proselytizing for about 10 years or so before the colony is officially organized, He and he starts his colony, and it finally gives him new direction, because... What he was always about was the redemption of Mexico. And here in this colony, which he names Colonia Industrial, um, Nueva slash Nueva Jerusalem. So this colony is a prototype for the New Jerusalem. Mexicans can show the world how it's done. And he firmly believes that Mexicans being obedient as they can will bring about... um, Christ's millennial reign and redeem Mexico, save them from centuries of suffering. So he adopts the most stringent, um, the most strict and difficult practices of early Mormonism, which have now gone by the way in the mainstream church. In his colony, they practice polygamy and communalism in this colony. But it's, it's his project for the remainder of his life.
1: Right. And with those, you know, with this project, I mean, the two things that that kind of are the, the, um, you know, if he has like two North Stars, I mean, you know, like purposes, right, as you mentioned is, I mean, really his push in the Mormon church and the whole reason of the third convention and even the previous two conventions was really this push for indigenous leadership, right? You, you discuss how he develops early on this indigenous kind of, you know, hermeneutic, right, uh, kind of theology, really buying into the Book of Mormon narrative of chosen people and just couldn't, you uh, know, really, uh, you know, deal, right? And, and so many Mexicans, and cetera, right? This, this is where the appeal goes beyond the Mormon church, right? They didn't want the paternalism of, right, Euro-American religious leaders, right? And it's actually against, you know, the the early the Mexican constitution, right, that they have these foreign clerics. So this is this is that that drive, that, and that's what the whole basis of the third convention is, right? And why he and uh, dozens, I think, of others are excommunicated. You mentioned that like a third of the the members of the the church, or this is the Mormon Church in Mexico, leave uh, the 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 Mormon Church, and they form kind of like a a break off of it the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints third convention right and and, and the, the reason there is that they wanted to lead right they they didn't want necessarily to to have the the kind of paternalistic hand of uh euro-american church leaders anymore but then that second thing that he always held on to was this belief in polygamy polygamy right and that this was the way to um kind of reproduce mexican society these two things right this uh oh.
2: Yeah, he was very, uh, very much sort of, um, and maybe he got this from Methodism, but kind of this holiness perfectionism. He was a perfectionist, very rich. Mm-hmm. And if God, if he thought God asked him to do something, anything, and it would redeem Mexico, Mexico was his true love. Wow. If if God had asked him to do anything, and it was going to save Mexico, and elevate Mexicans. He would have done it. And so these were two hard commandments the Euro-Americans couldn't keep, so he thought he'd try it, right?
1: Right. And his book, I mean, we we mentioned that briefly, his his book was basically kind of... uh, the, the outline of that plan I mean he claimed it was like this this was this true history of Mexico right that he was trying to reveal using a lot of right uh, scriptural references to the Book of Mormon um, the audience were you know his fellow Mexicans and he'd really hoped that the book would you know, sell well, right, in Mexico and kind of help show a vision that connected, right, the, the budding Mexican nationalism, right, to, you know, this theology. Like, this is the pathway for us to cast off uh, European domination and, and seize our true destiny, right? Oh,
2: yeah. He uses a lot of prophecies from the Book of Mormon about um, the last days and what will happen for Mexicans and including the fact that restoration will be have, have to be made to america's native native peoples including the restoration of land and the restoration of sovereignty so there are all these promises he never mentions the word mormon in the entire book
1: right
2: you know he, he doesn't want to put people off whatever prejudices they have he wants them to see a better future in what he's saying
1: you know? so yeah exactly. i think i was struck by how much um you know you mentioned this early in the book kind of and they end again, you know, he's in some ways like a precursor of, you know, other important Chicano luminaries like uh, uh, Cesar Chavez and Reyes T- uh, Tijerina Lopez, right? Or right. Lopez Tijerina. My bad, I got that reversed. Um and, uh, and a lot I mean, a key part of this was, you know, self-determination casting off again, colonialism. Um, uh, it, it's just, I mean, it, it's fascinating how, as you mentioned, it, the, the title the spiritual evolution and how a, a complicated figure was able to bring all this together. Um, uh,
2: yeah. well he thought long and hard about it. It's a family thing. I mean, his father fought for the Salvatistas. He was a spy in his seventies. Um, You know, Margarita is constantly trying to do his religious thing to bring about the redemption of Mexico. Um, It's interesting because I got an email from his grandson yesterday, who is a distinguished professor of medicine at the UCLA School of Public Health, and um, he he was talking about, in light of what happened in the Capitol building, um, that a better day was coming for Latinos, and he had he was talking about the history of how Latinos had um, been active in the United States in supporting the country and fighting in the armed forces, all kinds of things like this. Uh, One thing I came to realize as I was writing this is that I think that in a lot of ways, Euro-Americans see salvation church um, differently than Latinos do. And uh, for Latinos, um, I was reading what was um, En La Lucha, you know, this book. It's on uh, feminist theology. Maria um, Isasi Diaz. And uh, she, she talks about how to be in a relationship with God means that you are serving other people. Otherwise, you don't have a relationship. You're invested in your community. So... For Bautista, redemption of Mexico is his redemption. It's, and, and there's this whole history of social activism in churches in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Um, Robert Chao Romero has a book out called Brown Church right now, talking about the history of social activism over five centuries in Latino religion. Um, I just attended a, a session on it at the AAR. But this is a real thing, community, redemption of the community, serving your neighbor. Whereas I think oftentimes in Euro-American religions, they see a responsibility for, to, to offer charitable services and help other people, but salvation is something you work out on your own.
1: No, definitely. And I'm, I appreciate you mentioning uh, Robert's book. If he's listening, Robert, I'm going to be reaching out to you soon. <laughs> I just got a copy of that book, and and I mean, there's really a budding scholarship uh, uh, on these themes and on these issues about you know religion in the borderlands and its connection with social activism, as you're saying. And there's there's very much that that very incredibly strong theme uh, throughout this book, uh, and maybe that can help us as we wrap up to talk about you know his legacy and particularly his his kind of divergent and fraught legacy. Um, with Mexican, Mexican-American Mormons, and European-American Mormons. I mean, how is he remembered, uh, and if he is at all, uh, what's his legacy and impact?
2: It depends on how much people know about him. I, um, You know, for a lot of people, I they s- have seen him as a pariah, but for people who remember him in the Latino community, there are some who re- – they may not say it out loud, but they remember him with pride because he never bowed right to paternalism. So that, that part of his legacy is interesting. His colony still stands. In the United States, if you have a, a convention, what do you call it, um, intentional community, it usually lasts about 18 months max. But his colony is still standing today. Um, it was, you know, he died in 1961. It was founded in the mid 1940s. So this is quite a legacy to have an intentional community stand this, this long. It's it's quite amazing, actually, about 60 years, right? So um, 60 years, actually. So that is something he is remembered by, I hope that um, his writings can be rediscovered um, because because they do say so much. It's a Mormon chapter, a Mormon lens on these kind of tensions in the borderland. I think what it helps people say is nobody needs to say, oh, our religion has failed because we have tension. We have racial tensions. It, it would be, It's another thing to just say, hey. This happens everywhere. How do we work it out?
1: Indeed. I, um, as we address these issues in the classroom oftentimes, I mean, I, uh, students ask me several questions of, of, you know, how we make sense of the tensions in the different, uh, you know, uh, institutions, organizations, or, or spaces that we exist. And uh, one of the things I bring up is what you just said, right? I mean, there's there's always tension. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we can't excise ourselves from every institution, every space, every relationship that is fraught uh, with disagreement or with a difficult past, uh, uh, et cetera, right? So, um, I mean, there's so much truth behind that, uh, and it's um, it's really fascinating. I mean, how about also – we kind of touched on this at the beginning um, – the significance beyond, and we've already been touching on, like significance beyond Mormonism, uh, with this kind of like fraught histories and tensions in, in all sorts of religious. But how about the significance uh, of of this work to you know the way Christian churches operate today? I mean, uh, right. Uh, Evangelicalism uh, is, I believe, right. Is still, you know, it grows incredibly fast throughout the world, particularly South America. Uh, particularly, I mean, the Mormon Church's growth in Africa uh, has, uh, you know, been—I uh, don't know the right word, you know, to put on it—but it's 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 been immense. It's recently growing exponentially, uh, and this is again just part of a kind of like larger history that's continuing to to develop, right? So this the whole you know, Christian evangelization efforts throughout the global South is, has not stopped. It's a, it's a continued thing. And and so what, uh, you know, significance and lessons are to be, you know, drawn from this history that with all of its current relevance, relevance today.
2: Well, um, they, they have a lot more, there used to be that Mexico was one mission. Now it's many, and about, I think maybe 14 missions there. And I think about, or more, but half the mission presidents uh, have Latino surnames. I don't know if that means they're Argentinians or Spaniards or Mexicans or Guatemalans because they bring. You you never are a mission president where you live. You get sent somewhere. That's what makes it a mission. Mm-hmm. So in in the Mormon Church, but I do think that indigenous leadership, um, persons of color, are being promoted more in leadership and churches. Even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints now has um, a man of Asian heritage as an apostle. So I I think that things are changing and they're growing. I think that's very important. Also because, you know, it's not just Mormonism that has grown in Africa. Christianity itself is growing in Latin America and Africa. And um, that's largely due to Pentecostalism. Now, Pentecostalism, um, well, and in lots of Protestant churches, entrepreneurialism goes on. You can just break off and create another church and people go, hooray, another Protestant church, another Pentecostal church. But when you have a centralized church, like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Catholic Church, then then you run into issues about, well, do the leaders relate to me and my part of the world? Uh Do they understand my culture? Do they understand my history? It's very interesting to me because in the pages, in the narratives of the Book of Mormon themselves, you have this very interesting narrative about a king named Mosiah that has two refugee groups come to him and ask for asylum or ask for refuge. And one of the first things he does is have um, the history of those two people read out to his own. So they will understand their struggles and where they came from. Um, I don't think it's a thing that happens in the United States or in churches, but I think it would be a great thing. And that's kind of what I'm hoping my book does for other people. I'm hoping. I tried to build the bridge really hard, really hard between Euro-American um scholars members of of euro-american churches between euro-americans and the Latinx religious experience i tried really hard because i think um i think that what we have to do in the world right now on many levels is to listen to understand
1: well lisa uh, thank you so much for coming on to New Books in Latino Studies um, and discussing your book. Uh, it's been it's been loads of fun and I've I learned so much. Oh,
2: you're kind, you were a great host. Thank you so much for having me here. I really enjoyed being here and thank you to all the listeners who are listening. Oxford has told me I can um, give out a book coupon code for 30% off my book. Um, if you have a pencil, you can write this down It's um, A-A-F-L-Y-G-6. I'll say it one more time. A-A-F-L-Y-G-6. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for having me, DJ.